Fidel Castro outscored Colin Kaepernick in my quarterbacks and communists league. And Fidel Castro's dead. While Colin Kaepernick was posting top five quarterback week after top five quarterback week, we came on to these airwaves, Roto Underworld Radio, and stated flatly, Colin Kaepernick can't play. He's only taking snaps because he's the guy behind Blaine Gabbert, and Blaine Gabbert also can't play. The San Francisco 49ers do not have a proper professional starting quarterback in the league. That's why they're starting gimmick QB Colin Kaepernick. And you saw what happens when the gimmick QB goes sideways. He completes one pass for four yards and is benched in the second quarter. If you were streaming Colin Kaepernick, you were enjoying the ride while it was happening, but you knew deep down because he lost his job to Blaine Gabbert that the good times could not last forever. And the party ended abruptly last week. Ended just as a second Jarek McKinnon dance party was about to take off. Woo! Jarek McKinnon! No, we're not going to do a proper dance party with music, but I want to. Jarek McKinnon's fantasy viable again! That is worth celebrating. Double the number of touches that Matt Asiata received. That is worth celebrating. And just as I'm feeling a modicum of satisfaction about Jarek McKinnon, here comes Mike Clay. I feel like every time we have a dance party that's broken up by the cops, the first officer to arrive, his name tag reads Clay. Oh, we got a report of a lot of noise and fun. You're going to have to go ahead and shut that down. Per Mike Clay on Twitter, it's sad but true. But I was right about Matt Asiata blowing Jarek McKinnon out of the water this year in fantasy football. In his third year, it's not happening for McKinnon. Why that tweet and why now, Mike? McKinnon went over 16 fantasy points. He was an RB2 in fantasy in week 13. Why are you standing over Jarek McKinnon's jersey in the laundry basket and urinating on it? Why are you doing that? Why? It's curious timing. The curiously timed tweets always get my attention. So I thought, sure, let's revisit this Matt Asiata, Jarek McKinnon debate. Because in what world is Matt Asiata blowing Jarek McKinnon out of the water? They both have two usable weeks. And who's the one fantasy analyst that more often than not cites usable weeks when touting a player? It's Mike Clay. Ah, the creative fantasy point math. The fantasy analyst who's entrenched in a previous projection, so many statistical tricks that they can employ. You can use total fantasy points rather than fantasy points per game if the player you touted hasn't missed games while the player you're comparing him to has missed games. <sighs> no problem. Let's just use total fantasy points rather than fantasy points per game. I don't do that. I never use total fantasy points because that couldn't be more useless. I only talk in terms of fantasy points per game on this show. You can always find a stat that aligns with your position. Usable weeks, total fantasy points, and then, of course, standard scoring versus PPR scoring. Oh, when I was comparing Matt Asiata and Jarek McKinnon, I was talking about standard scoring and total fantasy points. Okay, why? Okay. Very few people play in standard leagues anymore, and total fantasy points is useless, but okay. Whatever stat you need to help you sleep at night... Use that stat. It's clearly more important to you to be right about Matt Asiata versus Jarek McKinnon than it is me. No one is as obsessive compulsive about their previous projections than Mike Clay. And he's so obsessive compulsive that I don't think it's healthy. No one cares more about being right than Mike Clay. And that's very stressful. It's not sustainable in the long run to be so stressed out about your previous sports opinions and projections. Now, I take pride in not name-calling on this show. We don't call people names. We critique actions. However, it was brought to my attention that at one point, I did call Mike Clay a doddering old man as it related to his use of Twitter. And I should amend that. Because while he does use social media like an old person, he's not doddering. He's eccentric. There's the difference. Mike Clay is absolutely an eccentric grandfather in his use of social media. He strikes me as someone that whenever he has a moment of downtime, he's going back and rereading his own tweets. 
If I had to guess, I would guess that Mike Clay rereads his own tweets more than anyone else in the fantasy football industry. He's just eccentric. When he's going to the grocery store with his wife, he makes sure they have every single possible coupon. The shoes in his closet are spaced perfectly. Yet Mike Clay has chosen to cover a sport with maximum chaos. That's the great tension that has led us here because it's stressful and difficult and dangerous to specialize in predictions. It's even more stressful and more dangerous to specialize in predictions of a sport with maximum chaos, maximum uncertainty, maximum random outcomes and events. And if you're obsessive compulsive about your accuracy, predicting sports outcomes with maximum chaos and random chance, that obsession with accuracy can drive you crazy. So this all comes as no surprise to me that Mike Clay would decide to reassess his Jarek McKinnon, Matt Asiata position two months later unprompted. No one was asking him to reassess it, yet he felt the need to do so. It's like he's arguing with himself. And the reason I describe the job as dangerous is because specializing in predictions puts you in a precarious place mentally and emotionally. If you set yourself up as the infallible predictor, the pressure of being exposed as someone who does not have all the answers could conceivably drive someone crazy. It's how someone could become the John Nash or the Bobby Fischer of fantasy football. We haven't seen it yet, but it could happen. And this only occurred to me when I saw Mike Clay replying to himself on Twitter, restarting a two-month-old argument that nobody cares about. I do not recommend that anyone decide to build a career specifically around making predictions. It's mentally and emotionally dangerous to specialize in predictions. As fantasy analysts, we're better off not tethering our credibility to correct predictions so that we don't have to feel like we're playing the role of fortune teller. The focus should be on the process, not the results. But I'm starting to see certain fantasy analysts like Mike Clay become too results-oriented. Without giving us any process-oriented information, no window into their process, all we have are the results to go by. And it's those individuals that set themselves up to be the psychics of the industry. And in that role, they're doomed to fail, particularly in the sport of football, which by its very nature is maximum unpredictable. And if you're looking for a cautionary tale on the danger of specializing solely in predictions, look no further than ESPN's Nate Silver. Following Nate Silver on Twitter on election night was sad. He is the definition of a cautionary tale. As you watched him spin around and spin around and spin around and look more and more wrong, in the end his rationalization was, well, I was actually less wrong than others, right? That's good, right? 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 Please don't shut down 538. We'll do better next time. Please? It was sad observing Nate Silver watch his career flash before his eyes on election night. Each swing state turning red and yet Nate Silver continuing to insist that Donald Trump was not a lock to win. Merely 67.85% likely. Get out of here. Trump's the winner. It's clear. Look at the map. Once you saw how things were going in Wisconsin and Michigan, you realized, oh, Trump is a lock. And Nate Silver was afflicted with take lock. In recent weeks, take lock has been the theme. And there's been no better take lock example in the world than Nate Silver. Having Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump well into election night was the most spectacular take lock I've ever witnessed firsthand. One of our jobs on this show is to identify situations where we may be exhibiting take lock and prevent it. Just say no to take lock. What's the most recent example? Thomas Rawls. Buy Thomas Rawls in the wake of CJ Procise's injury. Even after he underwhelmed in week 12. And then what happened? Two touchdowns, an RB1 in fantasy in week 13. And he will be an RB1 in fantasy every week through the end of the season. 
Everyone is saying it now. We were just saying it two weeks ahead of the crowd. Even though there are multiple videos on the Roto Underworld YouTube channel, go to YouTube, type in Roto Underworld Radio and Thomas Rawls, and you can see multiple clips where I am criticizing Thomas Rawls, where I'm calling Thomas Rawls overrated six months ago. But that was six months ago. This is now. CJ Procise is out for the year. No position in the NFL is as situation dependent as the running back position and the Seahawks running back situation changed dramatically when CJ Procise was deemed out for the season. And you can go back much earlier in the season to Jordan Howard. Before the season started, I was dubious of Jordan Howard's long-term viability in the NFL. Then and now, I do not view Jordan Howard as a strong dynasty buy. I do not see him as a player who can post perennial RB1 seasons in the NFL. I don't see him as that kind of player. I don't think Jordan Howard is athletic enough, and I don't think Jordan Howard is adept enough in the passing game to be an elite NFL running back. A lot of people disagree, but that's the long view. When we're talking seasonal fantasy football, the long view of a running back is irrelevant. That's why when Jeremy Lankford was hurt, the recommendation was go all in on Jordan Howard. Spend all your fab budget on Jordan Howard. In fact, I went through all the concierge newsletters. You can go to playerprofiler.com forward slash concierge. Sign up for real-time personal advice from me, which also comes complete with a weekly newsletter. In the first eight weeks of the season, we send out two newsletters per week. The early week newsletters earlier in the season are all the free agent pickups you want to focus on when you're making waiver wire claims. And then later in the week, we send another newsletter with DFS value plays and the best streaming options that week. I went back through the newsletter and the summaries of the shows that we recorded and Jordan Howard was the only player we recommended spending your entire fab budget on all season. No other free agent ad jumped off the screen like Jordan Howard did. You could say that that was the first step that I took in curing myself of this take lock affliction that affects every fantasy analyst to some degree. And with running backs in particular, you're required to have a nuanced conversation because how you view a player's career in a dynasty perspective can be very different than how you view his projected fantasy output for a single season. And the most recent player that I've pivoted on in order to prevent take lock, Jay Ajayi. That's right. We can't go a show without me somehow, someway bringing up Jay Ajayi so I can give you that voice. Jay Ajayi. Jay Ajayi is now underrated. That was Australian. It's true, though. Jay Ajayi is now officially underrated. Jay Ajayi went from underrated to overrated back to underrated. The Jay Ajayi curve. Yes. This season has been a constant effort to identify my own blind spots, be a realist, and avoid take lock. And for that reason, I can now say that Jay Ajayi is definitively underrated. Jay Ajayi is a buy. And unlike Jordan Howard, who I believe is properly rated in redraft, yet overrated in dynasty, I believe Jay Ajayi could be underrated in both redraft and dynasty. What was one of the main reasons I was so critical of Jay Ajayi? Because I couldn't believe that NFL coaches could assess a player for a year and a half and then determine that he wasn't worthy of the primary running back job on their team and were so convinced of this that they courted C.J. Anderson. They signed Arian Foster and then leaked public remarks questioning Jay Ajayi's work ethic, questioning Jay Ajayi's burst, questioning Jay Ajayi's ability to make plays in space in the passing game. If you followed the Miami Dolphins beat reporters this summer, you would have assumed Jay Ajayi would be cut. And those sentiments infected my analysis of Jay Ajayi. One of the regular complaints that I log about the fantasy football industry is the high value placed on the opinions of beat reporters. Because the beat reporters don't know any more than the coaches. The only times I find beat reports useful is when they are including pull quotes from coaches. Sentiments directly from the coaches. And we read a few of those about Jay Ajayi over the summer. And all of it 
was negative, was dismissive of Jay Ajayi's talent. And that influenced my opinion of Jay Ajayi's ability. That affected my assessment of Jay Ajayi in both Redraft and Dynasty. And I was wrong to let that happen. Never underestimate the ability for NFL coaches to fail at self-scouting their own players. Never underestimate a coach's ability to not know what they have on their own team. The inability of NFL teams to self-scout is truly breathtaking. And in the case of Jay Ajayi, the Miami Dolphins took self-scouting and competence to another level that surprised even me, me, Matt Kelly, the quintessential beat report skeptic, the Paul Revere of team propaganda, warning all about the team propaganda. The Dolphins took even me for a ride, went for a dolphin ride. And now finally, after four consecutive weeks with under 15 fantasy points, now, now of all time, now, 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 I feel like I am finally seeing Jay Ajayi for what he really is, just in time for me to be contrarian again. <laughs> just when you thought it was impossible for me to be more contrarian, I find a way to be more contrarian with Jay Ajayi. Jay Ajayi! That's right. I'm warming up to Jay Ajayi. It's, it's, it feels weird to say it. Feels fraudulent. It's apropos because Miami is the fraud capital of the United States. And they just so happen to have the most fraudulent football team in the National Football League. The Miami Dolphins are on a roll. They're playoff bound. Just need to win at Baltimore. The Baltimore Ravens. <laughs> Good luck! Ryan Tannehill getting a win at Baltimore. <laughs> But I am warming up to J.H.I. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, he's no David Johnson. Go to his profile, playerprofiler.com. J.H.I. 123.5, 79th percentile Spark X score. So we know he's athletic, but beyond that, he's big, 220 pounds. So he has size adjusted agility to go along with great college production. 41.3% college dominator, 89th percentile at a Division I program. You'll find very few running backs at Division I programs posting 40% dominators or above. Most of the running backs in the playerprofiler.com database with 40% or above college dominators went to non-major conference programs. Think Matt Forte at Tulane. That's the best example I have. At Tulane, Matt Forte had a college dominator over 60. That's the great example. Would not have done that at Alabama or Ohio State. But look at these evaded tackles. 8, 9, 7, 6, 7. Every game, Jay Ajayi seems to be breaking more than five tackles. And I understand the evaded tackle paradox. We love watching the between-the-tackles grinders run through defenders. That event inspires a direct visceral response in a way that a subtle shoulder maneuver to get out around a defender does not. But when you zoom out on Jay Ajayi and you ask the question, what do we want in our running backs? We want size. We want athleticism. We want them to be a workhorse. And Jay Ajayi is delivering. He's checking these boxes. Now, he's not checking boxes like David Johnson checks those boxes. In every way, David Johnson is a much better version of Jay Ajayi. What Jay Ajayi is, is a college mega producer and an NFL running back that has proved capable of absorbing an enormous opportunity share. And he has a workhorse profile. And when we talk about elusiveness and evaded tackles, he's top 10 in total evaded tackles on playerprofiler.com. He's not top 10 in juke rate evaded tackles per touch because he's a full-time player getting lots of carries. The running backs who are in the top five in juke rate are not every down running backs, typically. All those traits point to a player who, in Jay Ajayi, is just good enough to be an NFL workhorse. He's not a top five talent in the league. No. Top five fantasy running back is not in Jay Ajayi's range of outcomes. He's an average receiver at best, and like Lamar Miller before him, not active in the passing game. But perennial high-end fantasy RB2, Frank Gore-esque seasonal production is absolutely in Jay Ajayi's range of outcomes. 
So for that reason, I want Jay Ajayi on my redraft teams. Jay Ajayi will be a contrarian play in DFS GPPs this week facing a stout run defense in the Arizona Cardinals. And Jay Ajayi is a buy in Dynasty Leagues. I can't believe I believe this, but I do. I really do. I am free of these take bonds. Take lock is no longer holding me back. And I love it. Jai Ajayi! And the most impressive example of my take lock cure is Ted Ginn. Because the entire fantasy football industry has take lock when it comes to Ted Ginn. Every week, the fantasy industry underprojects Ted Ginn. And when we look back at the end of the season, no player will be more responsible for the playerprofiler.com player rankings. Check them out. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. No player more responsible for us beating fantasy pros than Ted Ginn. We've projected Ted Ginn between 10 and 30 slots higher than the expert consensus over the last six weeks. Because Ted Ginn's been averaging seven targets per game since week six. Seven targets per game is significant, particularly if you have one of the league's best average depth of targets and yards per reception. Ted Ginn is a big play field stretcher getting significant targets. What's not to like? Last week, five targets, 20 fantasy points. Ding, 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 ding. Fantasy football doesn't need to be hard. Another running theme on the show. Fantasy football doesn't need to be hard. Follow the targets, play your playmakers, win fantasy leagues. Simple! Oh, but what about Earl Thomas last week? Oh, yeah. You can't like Ted Ginn against Earl Thomas. <sighs> what should we do? Just project all the wide receivers matched up with bad cornerbacks to have 30 points, and all the wide receivers projected to match up against top 10 cornerbacks, five points. Is that what you want? Because those projections would be awful if they were only based on the opposing cornerback. And what about Earl Thomas last week? Earl Thomas got hurt because that's what happens when you base projections primarily on an external factor rather than the player himself and the player's situation. An external factor like the cornerback matchup is a secondary aspect of any projection, not the primary aspect. The two most common roots of the bad projection, number one, take lock. Number two, matchups driving the ranking and the projection, which in essence is the tail wagging the dog, the matchup wagging the player. The player should be wagging the matchup, not vice versa. To see this in action, look no further than Julio Jones in week 13. I read on Twitter that if I don't have Julio Jones ranked as my number one wide receiver for week 13, well, my projection model must be broken. Yes. You don't have Julio Jones ranked number one. Oh, <laughs> your projection model must be broken. Well, as it turns out, ranking Julio Jones ahead of Odell Beckham Jr. and ahead of T.Y. Hilton was a mistake because Odell Beckham Jr. and T.Y. Hilton outproduced Julio Jones. And I would also argue that ranking Julio Jones ahead of Antonio Brown was also a mistake because Antonio Brown in particular is consistent. The most consistent elite wide receiver producer in the NFL by far and away is Antonio Brown. Oh, but consistency, schmishency. Don't talk to me about consistency. If you're not ranking Julio Jones number one, you're doing it wrong. Uh, well, see, consistency really matters. The idea that volatility doesn't matter needs to go away. If we're talking about GPP tournaments, fine. You want volatility, but when you're setting your lineup in a redraft league or you're creating a cash game lineup, you want to minimize volatility. So one analyst believes that volatility doesn't matter. Another analyst, me, believes that it does. We disagree. That's healthy. What's not healthy is telling me that having Antonio Brown ranked number one over Julio Jones implies that my projection model is broken. Because who the fuck are you to say that about my projection model? Do you know who you're talking to? Who the hell do you think you are? And beyond that, that sentiment is a barefaced non-fact. The worst kind of wrong because it implies that you have all the answers. It's one thing to say, if you're not trying to acquire CJ Procise in Dynasty, you're doing it wrong. It's much easier to evaluate a player intrinsically and identify the type of player that you should be acquiring based on a lifetime value calculation. 
That's a much more stable, much more surefire evaluation mechanism. Weekly projections are the other end of that spectrum. It's much more difficult to say in any particular week, you must rank player X number one or you're a fool. You ranked Le'Veon Bell ahead of David Johnson this week? Fool! You ranked Odell Beckham Jr. ahead of Julio Jones this week? You're a fool! In the National Football League, where so much can happen week to week, there's so many possible input factors that go into weekly rankings. I would never call anyone a fool when critiquing their weekly projections and rankings because there are so many possible input factors that go into it. It's the National Football League where so much can happen week to week. And these input factors are backwards looking. They're based on trends and tendencies, not the realities of a future Sunday. Let's look at the Julio Jones example. Why was Julio Jones being ranked number one by many fantasy analysts? Because the tendency in the Kansas City secondary is static cornerback positioning. Marcus Peters, quote unquote, doesn't travel. And Julio Jones splits his time between the right side and the left side of the formation. That means he's not going to see Marcus Peters on every snap. Maybe half the snaps. Maybe it's difficult to heap any credit on NFL coaches if you believe that they're incapable of changing their game plan from week to week, isn't it? I read so many articles attributing a defense's success to their defensive coordinator. Oh, the defensive coordinator. He's the reason they've become an elite unit. Yes. But when evaluating the Kansas City Chiefs, we assume it's impossible for them to adjust their game plan. Huh? They probably won't. That's the tendency, though. But they could. Earl Thomas will probably match up with Ted Ginn on a significant number of snaps. Probably. Or it could get hurt. Or Seattle could change their game plan. <laughs> and in week 13, the very burnable Philip Gaines was out. Philip Gaines, who single-handedly made Emmanuel Sanders a top five wide receiver in week 12, wasn't going to play in week 13. And Philip Gaines' backup could very well have been a better player than Gaines himself. So why are we assuming the Kansas City secondary will be unchanged even though Gaines won't be playing? And if Gaines is not going to play and the Kansas City secondary is facing the best wide receiver they've faced all year in Julio Jones, couldn't you deduce that that would be the necessary impetus for the Chiefs defensive coordinator to change their defensive game plan? As it turns out, they didn't change the game plan. Marcus Peters matched up with Julio Jones half of the time, as expected. But no corner shadows a wide receiver for every single snap. And if Peters is matched up with Julio Jones for half the snaps, what does that mean? That means he's matching up with Julio Jones 20 to 30% less snaps than a typical shadow corner would have. Is that really the game-changing advantage that renders all other wide receivers inferior in Week 13? 20 to 30% of the snaps not being Marcus Peters? That makes me an idiot for ranking Antonio Brown ahead of Julio Jones? Chop, please! If you wanted to play an explosive player against a bad secondary with a super-friendly wide receiver cornerback matchup, it wouldn't even have been Julio Jones in Week 13. It would have been T.Y. Hilton. T.Y. Hilton, who outscored Julio Jones in Week 13, matching up with a corner as bad as Philip Gaines, Darrell Revis. But you couldn't have been sure how many snaps Darrell Revis would play against T.Y. Hilton. You don't know what you don't know. If you're building projections based primarily on the wide receiver cornerback matchup, you're building them on a foundation of sand, not concrete. Fantasy points, targets, touchdowns, those are concrete. Touchdowns, yes, touchdowns. Touchdowns are the reason why Antonio Brown's weekly fantasy output has been much less volatile than Julio Jones. Julio Jones needs great volume to be a WR1 in fantasy. We've seen him when he doesn't get great volume. Julio Jones has four games already on his resume with less than eight fantasy points. Julio Jones' fantasy output is either less than eight or more than 15. It's never in the middle. That's why he has a top five volatility quotient on playerprofiler.com. If you want to see a player's volatility quotient, weekly volatility quotient, you go to the game log tab on his player page, and the weekly volatility is featured on the right side of the screen.
The reason why Julio Jones has been so volatile is because he's not used in the red zone. Why? I have no idea. I thought Kyle Shanahan was a genius offensive coordinator. Yes. Heaping praise on Kyle Shanahan, making Kyle Shanahan the reason for the Atlanta Falcons offensive resurgence this year, even though Kyle Shanahan was their offensive coordinator last year as well. No, no, no. Kyle Shanahan's the reason. Really? I hope Kyle Shanahan's not responsible for Julio Jones' red zone reception total. You know what it is? Three. Three. That's why Antonio Brown has both a higher ceiling and a higher floor than Julio Jones. I don't care about consistency. I only care about a player's best case scenario, his ceiling. Well, okay. Well, what goes into a high ceiling? Touchdowns. If you love the high ceiling player, then you necessarily love Antonio Brown, not Julio Jones. Julio Jones has a higher floor and a higher ceiling than Julio Jones. The reason is touchdowns, even though Antonio Brown is four inches shorter than Julio Jones. That doesn't make any sense. It's illogical that an offensive coordinator would allow a 6'3", 220-pound wide receiver with a 133.0, 93rd percentile burst score and a 1037, 97th percentile catch radius on playerprofiler.com to have a red zone target share outside the top 100. Think about that. Julio Jones' three red zone receptions is less than Malcolm Mitchell. Malcolm Mitchell's not been a full-time player this year. No one thinks of Malcolm Mitchell as a red zone weapon. He's not a full-time player, and he's been sharing a field with Rob Gronkowski, Martellus Bennett, Chris Hogan, many more red zone threats than Julio Jones shares a field with. Yet, three red zone receptions for Julio Jones. That Kyle Shanahan, woo, genius, right, right? Right? If you're insisting I rank Julio Jones over Antonio Brown on any given week, even a week in which Julio Jones is playing the Kansas City secondary, which gives up more fantasy points to wide receivers than any other defensive unit in the NFL, even then playing a mere 50% of his snaps against top 15 corner Marcus Peters, even then it's obtuse to insist you rank Julio Jones ahead of Antonio Brown. Julio Jones leads the NFL in empty calorie receiving yards. I'm stealing that descriptor from Graham Barfield. He was on the show last week. Use that term, empty calorie. I'm going to use it to describe Julio Jones' production. And here's a tweet from Rich Rebar, at Lord Reeves on Twitter. Wide receivers with the lowest percentage of their points coming from red zone receptions. Are you ready? Dontrell Inman, 1.5% of his production comes from the red zone. Kenny Stills, 1.6%. The aforementioned Ted Ginn, 3%. Golden Tate, 4%. And checking in in the bottom five, Julio Jones, 4.1%. And I mentioned earlier, Marcus Peters is a top 15 corner. Where did I get that? On playerprofile.com forward slash player dash rankings. We will have cornerback rankings posted later in the week. Every Wednesday now we post cornerback rankings. It's the far right tab. We just launched the service last week. And we had a handful of lesser-known cornerbacks in the top 10 who played extremely well in Week 13. The first one that comes to mind, Casey Hayward. The masochists in the audience might be tempted to play Kelvin Benjamin one more week against a crippled San Diego Chargers secondary. Not so fast! Casey Hayward is a top 10 cornerback in the league. And Kelvin Benjamin is no Julio Jones. And I talked about Malcolm Mitchell. If you're Julian Edelman and you're watching Malcolm Mitchell and you're watching Chris Hogan in practice every day, it has to make you anxious. It does. Because I believe in the long run, Chris Hogan and Malcolm Mitchell will render Julian Edelman obsolete. And it won't happen immediately. It'll happen slowly over time. You will start to notice a touch squeeze with Julian Edelman. Now, Julian Edelman is as healthy as he's been in years at this very moment. And Rob Gronkowski is out for the year. So I believe Julian Edelman will be a high-end fantasy WR2 for the remainder of the season. Last six weeks, Julian Edelman, 14 points, 14 points, 16 points, 23 points, 16 points, 18 fantasy points in PPR leagues. Like Antonio Brown, Julian Edelman has been a model of consistency in the second half. And I think it continues because the soreness that he's been experiencing in his foot for almost a year has finally dissipated. In three straight games with eight receptions. How Julian Edelman is that? But in the long run, 
I'm less inclined to trade for Julian Edelman in a dynasty league now than I was two weeks ago because not only is he competing with the big play field stretcher, Chris Hogan, now Julian Edelman is competing for targets with a fellow flanker target hog in Malcolm Mitchell. And look at what Malcolm Mitchell has done in recent weeks. Since being installed as a regular in three receiver sets in week 11, Malcolm Mitchell, four catches, 98 yards, and a touchdown, 19 fantasy points. Five catches, 42 yards, two touchdowns, 21 fantasy points. Last week, eight receptions, 82 yards, 16 fantasy points. He's outproducing Julian Edelman over that period. He's a rookie, and he's only getting better. Malcolm Mitchell is Jeremy Macklin 2.0. Imagine if you put a young Jeremy Macklin on the Patriots. What would it look like? Well, we know what it would look like. It looks like Malcolm Mitchell. Malcolm Mitchell is an above-average athlete. He's an exceptional route runner, tremendous hands, and he would have been a prolific producer in college had he not suffered with A, a torn ACL, and B, abhorrent quarterback play. But he came back healthy in his final year at Georgia, posted a 35.8% 68th percentile college dominator rating, above-average college yards per reception. And while his breakout age is 22.1, his late breakout age is 100% because of the torn ACL. He just barely missed the breakout threshold as a freshman at Georgia. It's very rare that a true freshman wins the starting job at the college level, but it happened at Georgia with Malcolm Mitchell. So Malcolm Mitchell is like Josh Doxson in that he has a very late breakout age, but because of extenuating circumstances, he was also a producer at a very young age, but was lost in the sands of time. He's going to be playing the flanker role on the right side of the formation next to Julian Edelman for the next couple years. And instead of just feeding the ball to Edelman on those pick plays on the right-hand side, now Brady is going to have to decide whether he throws the ball to Edelman or Mitchell. Starting in 2017, we cannot assume that Julian Edelman will lead the Patriots in target share. I would not be surprised if starting next year, we find ourselves reclassifying Malcolm Mitchell as the Patriots' primary receiver. It's never going to be Chris Hogan because Chris Hogan plays the X receiver position. And the X receiver position in that Patriots offense is a low volume position, often running decoy routes, but occasionally making big plays down the field. The Patriots' first read is always to the right-hand side of the formation, always looking at that slot flanker bunch formation and seeing if the defense gives them a gimme eight-yard completion. And that used to always go to Julian Edelman. But now the Patriots are finding out if we throw the ball in Malcolm Mitchell's direction, he already has Julian Edelman-level playmaking ability. What happens next year? Malcolm Mitchell's 24 in the prime of his career, in the prime of his youth, And Julian Edelman's 31 years old. The touch squeeze is going to happen quickly to Julian Edelman. And the loss of Gronkowski doesn't help Julian Edelman as much as is projected. Gronk was only receiving six and a half targets per game before he was injured. If you spread those targets around, one or two targets to Martellus Bennett. One or two targets to Julian Edelman. A target to Hogan. A target to Mitchell. A target to Amendola. A target to Lewis or White. We're already way past six and a half targets. Then you have to account for the fact that the loss of Rob Gronkowski will throttle the Patriots' scoring opportunities. The Patriots are not scoring touchdowns like they were with Rob Gronkowski. If you own Tom Brady, you're seeing this now. You're experiencing this. When Rob Gronkowski went down, the focus was, who benefits in the passing game? The answer, no one receives more than a nominal uptick in targets, and that's offset by the overall offensive degradation. Because Rob Gronkowski sustains drives. The presence of Rob Gronkowski allows the offense to score more touchdowns. So a slight uptick in targets for Bennett and Edelman is offset by an overall throttling of the offense, of the offense's scoring opportunities. So when you put Malcolm Mitchell and Julian Edelman and Martellus Bennett in that context, you realize nobody wins. When a talent like Rob Gronkowski goes down, everybody loses, and Tom Brady in particular. Now, I mentioned a target would go to either James White or Deion Lewis. I think it's more likely that target, that additional target will be headed in Deion Lewis's way, not James White. You say, what? James White's the guy in the passing game. Not necessarily. I understand James White has over 40 receptions, over 8.0 yards per reception. Those are impressive PPR back stats, but James White is just a guy. We've talked about this on multiple shows. And James White's just a guy-ness? was perfectly illustrated, crystallized in week 12, 
when James White could not convert a two-point conversion. In fact, he failed to convert the two-point conversion in the most comical way possible. James White got his entire body in the end zone. Every part of his body was in the end zone except the football. And the Patriots coaches saw this. And I'm sure they all realized, oh, Deion Lewis would have scored there. And that matters. Because what happened in week 13, even in a blunt game like week 13 against the Rams, Deion Lewis outtouched James White 9-7. to Lewis got the same number of targets as White, but Lewis tripled White's carry total. Again, that was a blatant blunt game. I wasn't starting Deion Lewis against the Rams. Week 14 will be very different against the Ravens. But I'm not going to go onto Twitter and say, if you don't have Deion Lewis ranked as an RB1 in fantasy this week, your projection model is broken. Yeah, broken. If you don't agree with my projection, your projection model is broken. So I will be quietly optimistic about Deion Lewis this week. Why? Because Bill Belichick doesn't care about your fantasy team. That's the problem. Talked about this earlier with the Kansas City defensive game plan against Julio Jones. Why is it that fantasy analysts only ever assume that Bill Belichick is capable of treating his defensive schemes like an amoeba, changing the entire schematic approach based on what the opposing offense likes to do? Bill Belichick's number one goal, take away the thing the opposing offense likes to do the most. Let's take away their best asset. In the Patriots' first Super Bowl with Tom Brady, what did they do? They tried to take away Marshall Falk. Why every team doesn't do that, I do not know. I will continue to assume that most teams know they need to do that and will at least make some effort to try to stop Julio Jones on a weekly basis. I will never stop assuming that because I have to assume that NFL coaches have at least a shred of competence. Even if the Miami Dolphins coaches had no idea what they had in JGI. None. It's also surprising that we continue to give Bill Belichick so much credit, even though Bill Belichick plays dumb about how much information he has at his disposal. We're left to assume that Bill Belichick will be playing Deion Lewis over James White because he saw James White fail on that two-point conversion in a spectacular fashion, not because he has access to the advanced metrics. If Bill Belichick had access to the advanced metrics, if we believed that Bill Belichick has access to advanced metrics, then by consensus, everyone would agree the Patriots will be playing Deion Lewis over James White in week 14, because last year, Deion Lewis led the NFL in juke rate, evaded tackles per touch. And his 17.3 fantasy points per game was top five among NFL running backs. Deion Lewis is an elite running back talent. James White is a replacement level passing down specialist. James White's not merely a replacement level running back. He's below replacement. But I would concede he's a replacement level passing down specialist. But we're to believe that Bill Belichick doesn't have access to advanced metrics, has no idea how good Deion Lewis really is. Because when asked whether or not he uses advanced metrics, Bill Belichick played dumb. He said, quote, what the hell are advanced metrics? You can take those advanced websites and metric them in whatever you want. I don't know. I've never looked at one. Bill Belichick has never visited playerprofiler.com, apparently. I wouldn't even care to look at one. As far as quarterback goes, the quarterback reads the coverage. He throws the ball to the open receiver, takes the best matchup. That's what it is in a nutshell. That's why Julian Edelman gets eight receptions every single game like a metronome. The quicker they're open, the clearer the picture, the sooner the ball goes out. And if we don't have anyone open, who is the quarterback going to throw to? I don't know. So Belichick goes on to say it's timing, it's decision making, it's execution by an entire offensive team. That's what the passing game is. Receivers have to get open and catch the ball. The quarterback's got to read coverage and make the right decision and make an accurate throw. You can use all the metrics you want. I have no idea. But they need to help you execute that. And if you believe those advanced metrics are helping you execute that, then you need to go ask a smarter coach than me. Oh, really, Bill? Very clever. You don't use advanced metrics, huh, Bill? Bill. You... Bill, 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 oh, Bill, oh, Bill, you're so cute when you're being deceptive. Gamesmanship, yes. Of course, you don't want anyone to know what advanced metrics you use. 
Because advanced metrics are a competitive advantage. They help you know whether you have your hands on a Deion Lewis or a James White. And you know before the play happens that James White's probably not going to convert that two-point conversion, but Deion Lewis would have. And based on the success the Patriots have had over the last 15 years, we can assume that Bill Belichick has access to advanced metrics. Obviously, Bill Belichick uses advanced metrics. Because before you take Bill Belichick's words in a press conference on face value, remember, football coaches are first and foremost professional liars. And then everything else is secondary. Their number one goal is to maintain any competitive advantages they have to bend their will to protect those advantages. So why the hell would he talk about the advanced metric services that he uses? Wouldn't make sense. In fact, even better, let's convince other professional football teams and the public that we're oblivious to the existence of these advanced metric thingy-majiggies. We just throw to the open guy. It's all we can do. Right, 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 right. But Bill Belichick may not understand the inner workings of advanced metrics, and that's okay. That's not his job to understand them. I wouldn't expect Bill Belichick to step behind a podium and explain the inner workings of his team's use of analytics, how they implement advanced metrics in their scouting and game planning. I wouldn't expect him to stand in front of a microphone and explain that to the public. That's not his job. That's not in his job description. That's not in his skill set. So the easiest thing to do is play dumb. Of course. Because then he can also do that cute, fun, condescending thing. Yeah. Greg Popovich does the same thing. We just like to throw passes to the open guy and make open shots. That's basketball. <laughs> right. Sure, guys. Cool. I see you. I see you. Pointing my index finger and middle finger at my eyes. Back at you. Back at my eyes. Back at you. Back at my eyes. Back at you. I see you guys. Dismissing the whole idea of advanced metrics and analytics that could help sports teams. Yes. Ridiculous. Of course, Bill Belichick uses advanced metrics, but he's also not the guy writing the algorithms to take advantage of the data. You wouldn't want him to be that guy. No one would ask Bill Belichick to write the algorithms. That would be a blatant misallocation of resources. The leader of the organization needs to understand how the pieces fit together in order to create harmony, a melody. When you watch the Patriots offense, it needs to feel like you're listening to a beautiful song for the first time. That's Bill Belichick's job. And that's the hardest job. He's the composer, and being the composer is the hardest job. Whether you're composing an orchestra, or you're building software, or you're a singer-songwriter, or you're a movie producer. Look at Jerry Bruckheimer. We know Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer of Top Gun. Hit action movie after hit action movie. This summer, a Jerry Bruckheimer production. Tom Cruise, Will Smith, Jason Statham, The Rock. Yes. Being Jerry Bruckheimer is hard, and sometimes you get lucky. You get lucky signing a Dion Lewis as a free agent. Drafting Tom Brady in the sixth round. Drafting Julian Edelman in the seventh round. Creativity is hard. Creating a winning organization with a winning formula, something that produces a hit record or a hit movie at the box office, those require maximum creativity. And a lot of talented leaders and creative people in the record business, in the music business, never created a hit record. In the movie business, never had a box office smash. Just never happened for him. One of Jerry Bruckheimer's top grossing movies of all time is Bad Boys. Do you know who Jerry Bruckheimer wanted to star in Bad Boys? Not Will Smith, not Martin Lawrence. Dana Carvey was slated to be the lead. John Lovitz was going to be his partner. Jerry Bruckheimer wanted Dana Carvey to play the Mike Lowry character in Bad Boys. Think about that. And still, in that entire enterprise, more than the director, the person responsible for the success of that movie was ultimately Jerry Bruckheimer. Look at the music business. The best leaders are not necessarily the best musicians. See this over and over again. Lorne Michaels, the producer of Saturday Night Live, one of the most successful television producers of all time, called Paul McCartney Mozart of rock and roll. Because that's what he's good at. He's a composer first. He's a musician second. That's why Paul McCartney is a music god. Because it wasn't just that he could play guitar and play bass and his vocals had great melody. When Ringo went on strike, it was Paul McCartney that played drums. 
but none of those were his greatest skill. His greatest skill was his ability to compose the music, to envision how it would fit together to create a hit song. When you think of musicians of Paul McCartney's stature, another one that comes to mind is Roger Waters of Pink Floyd. The other members of Pink Floyd mocked Roger Waters because he wasn't the same level musician that they were. He couldn't play the guitar like David Gilmore. Not close. He had a raspy singing voice and wasn't particularly good at playing any of the instruments. But what was Roger Waters good at? Seeing the big picture, creating a vision, an album that was more than the sum of its parts. That's what makes Paul McCartney great. That's what makes Roger Waters great. The beautiful thing about Pink Floyd is we got to see Pink Floyd without Roger Waters. We got to listen to Momentary Lapse of Reason and High Hopes. Beautiful, perfectly played music that felt empty. That's why Bill Belichick should not be on the podium talking about advanced metrics. And music's a great analog, but let's look at the other side of the spectrum. What's the opposite of an artist? Corporate titan. Steve Jobs. Jeff Bezos. Same principle applies. Steve Jobs could not write code. Watch the movie Steve Jobs with Michael Fassbender. The programmers looked down on Steve Jobs because he couldn't write the code, but it didn't matter. He could see how all the pieces fit together. The original Macintosh was 10 years ahead of its time. Only once the internet became ubiquitous could the power and the genius of the Macintosh be unlocked. And he believed in his vision to such an extent that he refused to compromise and eventually was fired because the Macintosh failed. Why did it fail? Because it was ahead of its time. And he persevered and eventually came back to Apple and was rewarded as Apple's market cap broke every record, not just in high tech, but in the global history of corporations. Apple's the most valuable enterprise of all time. Jeff Bezos doesn't understand how all the businesses in Amazon work exactly. It doesn't matter. He had a vision for the everything store and great instincts, putting the right people in charge of key departments to ensure that the enterprise was successful. That's what you want in your leadership positions. The composer CEO. That's Bill Belichick. I'm sure you've heard me talk about the Draft app in previous shows. This week, I will be setting up a one-week fantasy league on Draft exclusively for Roto Underworld listeners. Follow us on Twitter at Roto Underworld for further instructions. But in the meantime, go to your app store on any mobile device, type in the word Draft, download it, use the promo code UNDERWORLD, and you no longer have to use salary caps to build your daily fantasy rosters. Draft allows you to build rosters via snake draft, so all your players are unique from your competitors. We'll have the league set up later this week. Follow us on Twitter for more details to come.